Hello and welcome to Immigrantly, your weekly dose of thought-provoking conversations with a smattering of optimism and hope. I'm your host and the creative force behind this show. And listeners, I am so excited for the show today. But you know what? This interview, at least the preparation for it, got me thinking about a lot of things. So those familiar with this podcast know that I am a passionate advocate for human rights. However, I've always grappled with the term activism and its true essence. Is it solely reserved for those with academic expertise like me? Or can we all be activists in our everyday interactions with others? How can we effectively amplify the voices of the marginalized, basically those who lack the platforms to speak up? And most importantly, how do we remain accountable? Yes, accountable throughout our activism journey. Can activism exist without ulterior motives? Why do we sometimes alter our activism course? And I've seen this. I've seen this in activism space. A lot of people will hold back when confronted with their own biases or prejudices within their communities. So take a moment to reflect on how you show up for others in your life. Can you look beyond biases, whether they favor or work against specific individuals who are connected to you? When did you last choose silence in the face of rights violations perpetrated by your people, community or tribe? These are questions worth reflecting on, right? So take a moment to let them settle deep within your consciousness. And if you uncover any insights or find answers, don't hesitate to contact me by writing or sharing a memo. I'm always eager to hear your thoughts. In the meantime, our guest today is actively grappling with these very questions. She's a remarkable individual who has devoted her life to creating space and amplifying the voices of others. Today, I will be chatting with Anisha Singh, the Executive Director of the Sikh Coalition. If that organization is unfamiliar to you, the Sikh Coalition is the largest Sikh civil rights organization in the U.S. Founded in the aftermath of 9-11 hate crimes, the organization works to support the Sikh community nationwide. That can mean addressing employment discrimination, for example, as well as upholding religious freedoms and safe school environments. Anisha has been interested in this advocacy, policy and law space for a while now. Before starting her current position in 2022, Anisha worked with many organizations, including Planned Parenthood Federation and the Center for American Progress. She's also no stranger to more grassroots advocacy and is licensed to practice law. In 2015, for example, she won an anti-discrimination case against the U.S. Army where she defended the right of a Sikh college student to join the ROTC while donning his articles of faith. 
So as always, I am pretty excited about the conversation coming up. A, because the Sikh Coalition is doing great things and I'm excited to learn more about. And B, because Anisha just strikes me as an intelligent and driven person. So without further ado, let's welcome her to Immigrantly. Hi, Anisha. Welcome to Immigrantly. I am so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm glad we are doing this. Oh, my gosh. How many times did we reschedule? <laughs> you just did it once. But unfortunately, I had a personal emergency um, and I had to reschedule it twice. But things seem fine now. And I'm so glad we are in this space talking to each other. Absolutely. It's it's long awaited, but excited to be here and, and glad things are better at home too. Yeah, yeah. I haven't told my listeners about this because I feel I needed time to process it myself. But my husband was in a motorcycle accident. He had quite a few injuries, but he was in high spirits somehow. He still is. But the last two weeks have been pretty taxing. I haven't been able to process it yet. I haven't really thought through it much because the minute I found out I was in this being in charge mode, I had to do everything, bring him back from Virginia, take care of him, take care of the household. But now it's hitting me. I keep thinking of alternate scenarios and I'm like, what the hell? Why was he riding a motorcycle? Why did I allow him to ride a motorcycle? But, you know, it happens. It happens and you just move on. Yeah, you can't control what you can't control. I'm, I'm glad he's doing better. And I think it's a testament to how hardworking you are that despite it all, you still schedule this. <laughs> and we're still making it happen. So, you know, give yourself that grace and space to process, but also Hopefully moments like this to have these types of conversations are good distractions in the process. Exactly. Now, Anisha, as we were prepping for your interview and you were doing research, I was just blown away by the amount of work that you've done. You were part of Planned Parenthood. You were, you know, Forbes 30 under 30. You are or were adjunct professor at NYU, and now you're executive director at Sick Coalition. Oh my gosh. Do you consider yourself an activist? I think so, yeah. So how do you define an activist or activism? I think fighting for those who don't have a voice. That has always been my North Star. It's been the drive behind all the things you just listed and, and the work that I do. And if we don't use our privilege to help others and bring others along with us, then what are we doing? So I, I that's how I define activism is really just fighting for those who can't fight for themselves. Has your activism ever put you in a situation where you really had to fight against your beliefs to help others? I've been fortunate not to necessarily encounter that, but I think it's definitely challenged my viewpoints, right? When you're 
an organizer, and I definitely consider myself an organizer, and you're on the ground, you talk to community members in various fights that we've especially seen over the last five, six years here in America, it really challenges your viewpoints of um, the sheltered, you know, privilege that you've had around certain issues. And you're always learning. And I think that you're only as good of an activist or an organizer or a leader as you are learning. And so I think it's a challenge sometimes to keep that mindset open and lead while bringing folks along who can bring their own stories and bring different viewpoints. I think that's been the most challenging piece. And the other piece of it that's been really challenging is working across the aisle sometimes gets really hard. Working with folks and sitting at tables with folks who don't have the same viewpoints as you, who don't believe in the same dream for this country and for your community and still having to work with them, compromise, right? Like have those dignified conversations to advance, whether it's legislation or any sort of project or campaign or initiative and reminding yourself to keep that open mind and that everyone comes with a story and bringing that compassion to this work can sometimes feel challenging when you're seeing some of the horrible things happening to to your community or, or communities like yours. And so I think those have been things that I've had to grow and learn as I've gone along, especially in some of the previous roles I've held at Center for American Progress as the organizing director and at Planned Parenthood during a time when abortion rights were being just dismantled left and right. You know, it's easy to fall into the trap of anger, but I think it takes a lot more to lead with compassion and, and remember that compassion even towards those who it might feel like are, are hurting your cause. Anisha, do you think sometimes anger can be a constructive tool to propel people into action or activism? Absolutely. And I think it's the most beautiful way to channel anger as well. And I've seen it. Great example is during the fight to try and stop Brett Kavanaugh from sitting on our Supreme Court. I witnessed and I was uh, fortunate to lead so many of the protests and marches where thousands upon thousands of women just left their job, jumped on buses, carpooled over to D.C. from across the nation. Thousands of protesters gathered here in Washington today to protest Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. Some of them were telling me stories of driving all the way from Seattle, Washington to Washington, D.C., and just to protest, to sit in, get arrested and do it again the next day because they were angry. They were angry about the direction of our country and the message mm. that would come from uh, confirming an individual that has hurt women and reminded so many other women of the pain they have also witnessed. And so that is a prime example of just a lot of angry women and allies coming to one space and uniting in ways that I just have never seen. I remember locking arms with other women, again, from across the country, all of us having black tape on our mouth that says, believe women and just waiting to get arrested, yeah. you know, and just kind of in it together. And it was anger, anger that drove that, but also a a passion and a belief in what this country can be and what it should be. And so it was kind of beautiful in that way just to see that come together. What motivates you to keep going, to keep doing what you do every single day? 
what's the alternative? That's a big one. It's I could sit down. I love baking. I could go bake <laughs> my full-time job. <laughs> but what's the alternative? Letting things happen in a way that I know is not right for this country, not right for the communities that I care about. And sitting back and taking that seat and turning a blind eye, like that just feels like, again, going back to the definition of activist, it feels like I'm not using the privilege and the voice that I do have, the platforms that I do have to help others when there's so much that we need to do to advance our country. So that's what keeps me going. Honestly, it's it's channel that, right? Channel that frustration and sometimes that disappointment, channel it and, and continue to mm. fight for it because it does sometimes feel like it's three steps back, one step forward. And so, but then sometimes you do, you do see that progress really work. Another key example, I, I, I remember again, when I was at Center for American Progress was working really hard to protect and keep the Affordable Care Act. And we, I mean, we were working across the country. We were traveling a lot. We were working with so many different coalitions that I've never worked before, late hours, weekend hours, right? so much and it worked. We were able to protect mm. the act. Um, and so when you see those moments, you realize that when we all come together and we all remember that we can make a difference and not to feel defeated and, and run from the fight, we really, really can protect what's sacred and, and, and advance what we need to. Let's talk about your childhood because a lot of what you're saying, I feel a lot of times we are influenced by family dynamics, the environment we grew up in. So what about your upbringing and childhood has influenced your journey so far? I think I've always just been an, a huge empath. I think from a young age, my family makes fun of me, but I would see a, a commercial that has like all these emotions and I'd be crying and they'd be like, why are you crying? <laughs> but I have <laughs> been like an empath empathetic, compassionate person, I think. And I, fourth, in fourth grade, I heard about an earthquake and I went to, you know, the guidance counselor and I was like, can I put a fundraiser together? And I feel like I always had that in me, but all of that came together when 9-11 happened. When 9-11 happened, myself and I know many in my community, the Sikh community, but also the larger South Asian community felt it in two waves, right? We were just shocked by what just happened to the country, but we were also terrified of what was happening to our community. We were seeing attacks to our community right. in ways that we, at least it, some of us just hadn't seen before. I remember going to Gurdwara, the Sikh temple in Sikh house of worship that down in South Florida. And I remember just the fear and the sadness that was felt by some of the uncles in my Gurdwara and just wanting to do something. And so I started volunteering and just being a, a little bit of a liaison almost for the, the South Florida Sikh community and some of the Sikh organizations that were doing this work around, you know, discrimination and hate incidents and hate violence that was coming as the aftermath and Sikh coalition. <laughs> Hmm. happened to be one of those organizations. And it was founded, the Sikh Coalition was founded in the days after 9-11 happened because of that huge uptick in hate incidents that we saw against our community and, and just a group of individuals who were the founders kind of put this, this organization together. And I volunteered and I just saw the change that I could create and how 
organizing and advocacy and legal work and in, in the civil rights space, right? Nonprofits and just learning that entire ecosystem. I kind of grew my passion for what I do today. So having that space, it's the, the bittersweet thing that comes from tragedy is you're mm. able to kind of find sometimes your voice or your space or kind of your passion from, from it. And that's what happened for me. And so I was able to just grow from there and, and the rest is kind of history. So it's actually poetic to come back to the Sick Coalition now as it's entered its third decade after I've had all these other experiences and work experiences in life and be able to kind of come back to where it really all started. Anisha, let's talk about post 9-11 era. Now, a lot of times people in the U.S. confuse Sikhism with Islam, right? We saw that post 9-11 because the first American who was murdered in an act of hate crime was sick. Days after the horror of the 9-11 attacks, the Valley experienced another senseless death. The killing of Balbir Singh Sodhi, a Sikh murdered outside of a Mesa gas station in a hate crime. Nobody, nobody should ever, ever be targeted for their religious identity, their sexual identity, their ethnic, national identity, right? But the irony is, a lot of times people who are hate criming others are not really aware of who they are hate criming. How do you draw that distinction and create awareness about Sikhism without othering Muslims? That is a, a great question. I think one of the things I value so much about the Sikh coalition and also just the Sikh community as a whole is there was this decision, right, that had to be made right after 9-11 happened is what is our narrative going to be? What is our story going to be? How are we going to show up to this moment? We believe that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. A lot of what happened after 9-11 was to drag Islam into this. FBI hate crime data show a surge in anti-Muslim incidents after the 2001 attacks with they another... taken my religion and sort of sabotaged it. People saw turbans and beards as something to be fearful of. Americans who see six automatically think you're a terrorist. I've been called ISIS a lot recently. People associate people who look like us with an event that we didn't create, we have nothing to do with. And we it's just not it. an option for us to throw another community under the bus, even if it means things are harder for us. And it's very easy, I think, to choose, hey, we're not them. Go there. Don't come here. But that's not what we did, right? We held hands and joined with the Muslim community, the Arab community, the South Asian community, and as a united force, really created education campaigns, right? Advocacy campaigns. And to this day, 22 years later, that continues to be a really strong coalition of organizations that work together and make sure we are not leaving anyone behind. And that continues to be the, the mission almost of, of the SIC coalition is striving to better the country for our community, but all communities as well, and not leaving anyone behind. So with that in mind and that kind of as our motivation, uh, we work really closely in coalition for a lot of the work that we do. So a good example is in, mm. in New York recently, we were fighting for API history to be included in state standards and curriculum. 
in New York. And in that fight, it wasn't just us. We worked with an entire coalition of API organizations. And that's what's effective, right? Bringing everyone together. Mm-hmm. Because yes, if we are able to, to do that work, you know, we can get Siki added to the curriculum, but we're also bringing along and working alongside other organizations and communities so that they can do the same because it's it's stronger if we're bringing more diversity to that fight. At the same time to, you know, the other point of your question is so much of our work has to be proactive because in order to stop hate against the sick community, you have to educate folks. And so we try to do that as a, at a young age. We try to make sure we have trainings and modules that are available for schools and for parents to bring to their schools so that Sikhi can be taught in classrooms, but we also do that state standards work across the board. I think one of the coolest things to me about the Sikh Coalition is, to my knowledge, we are the only organization that has a 100% track record of every state we've been in to fight for Sikhi to be added to state standards so that Sikhism is taught in schools so that our young people can learn about Sikhi early on and that, that ignorance can be quashed early on. We've been successful. So 17 out of 17 of states plus DC. So 18 total places that we've been able to see that and and make sure that's happening. And then the real work happens, right? Implementation, making sure the schools are actually teaching Sikhi and making sure parents have the empowerment to make sure of that as well, the accountability factor there. But that's a huge piece because if we're able to educate young people at the start, the hope is they're growing up understanding the differences between religions, races, ethnicities, all of that, which is why it's so disappointing and and scary, honestly, to see this anti-critical race theory movement right now across the country where books are being banned and curriculum is just being stripped. Um, from these schools, because how do we create a tolerant, inclusive country and world without education? But do you think people who are trying to ban CRT, who are trying to ban more inclusive books, even care about a tolerant America? I think they thrive on a less tolerant, hierarchical, racially hierarchical America, no? I think there is fear. I think the louder minority voices get, the more oppressive legislation and action you will see because they are threatening what they consider the fabric of America, their privilege, their power, their voice having more of an impact um, and being louder. And so if we are doing our job right, you will see more attacks on the other side. And, And that's kind of the ecosystem of this work. It's they wouldn't be attacking us if we weren't a threat. And when I say a threat, I don't mean the artificial threats that they've created in, in the narrative. I'm talking about a threat to their power, um, a threat to the seats that they have at the table, the powerful tables, right? We are taking more and more chairs and adding them to that table. And, and that's a threat to them. So that is where I think this work gets so challenging because the more we fight, the more they fight. And that's why this continues. But what is happening is we are becoming more and more of a diversified society, not just here in America, right? Across the globe, that is the, the, the fact. And so the more that happens, the more pushback we're going to see, which just means we have to be louder and get more strategic and smart with our approach and our advocacy and our organizing as we continue to, to try and progress this country. This episode is sponsored by Better Help. 
We talk a lot about mental health on this podcast and the importance of caring for yourself. In fact, we dedicated an entire season to it. And you know what? There are so many different ways to take care of your mental health, whether meditation or getting a massage. But let's be honest, sometimes you just need to connect with someone. I have been very open about the fact that therapy has greatly helped me manage my anxiety. So if you've been struggling with stress, anxiety or want to learn effective preventative tools, better help might be for you. Whether you're dealing with decisions around career, relationships or anything else, therapy helps you stay connected to what you really want while you navigate life. So you can move forward with confidence and excitement. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash immigrantly today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash immigrantly. Anisha, you worked on anti-bullying campaigns as well. And this is a great segue into my next question. You've talked about educating young minds, educating kids to understand a more inclusive and holistic society, to understand different faiths, identities in different forms, which is all incredible, right? Kids are very receptive to learning. But at the same time, kids can be really brutal, right? As I said, you worked on anti-bullying campaigns and I do want you to talk a little bit about that. But a lot of times what kids are saying and how they process information comes from their parents. So uh, many times kids are almost misinformed, ill-informed about people around them. And I have given this example multiple times on different platforms, but I'll give it here again in sixth grade, my daughter was called Queen of Taliban by one of her classmates. The kid probably didn't even know what he was talking about, right? But it really left an indelible mark on my daughter. She was traumatized by it, right? How do we make sure that the information campaign goes beyond or outside schools? And how does it get into households? Well, first, I'm so sorry that, that happened to your daughter. Unfortunately, I think so many of us have a story like that. And one thing that I'm really, really proud of, there's so many things I'm proud of when it comes to the coalition's work is the holistic approach, right? So I talked a little bit about that education campaign, but to your point, the communication aspect is so critically important here too. And having a strong media voice is is really, really important. And we have seen the impact of certain news channels on campaigns, right? On who's our next right. leader. We've seen its impact on the narrative in this country. We've seen how it can fuel hatred, but it can also inspire. It can also educate. And so we always try to make sure that we are piercing that narrative and including sick voices into the media stream, into you know various platforms, whether it's local print media or a national TV, you know, um, network, we, we want to make sure that we're including that. So that is critically important to our work and a huge initiative that we take seriously. But the other is 
understanding the why so that we can figure out the next steps. And one of the coolest things that we've been able to do this last year is the largest sick American survey in history, which is over 2,200 sick students were surveyed across the country. Our staff and our volunteers went around to different gurdwaras and, and just spoke to kids and had them fill out these quantitative surveys to really understand, hey, are you being bullied? Hmm. In what way are you being bullied if you are? How does that make you feel? Have you suffered from any mental health and mental anguish because of it? And then to me, the more interesting is like so many people, so many of these young kids will say, no, I've not been bullied, but yes, I've been called names. And, And they are not connecting those dots because we have created an environment where young kids think they're just joking. They are just, right? Yeah. It, it was just a joke. It's okay. And and trying to just brush it off, but but it hurts, right? It still hurts. And so how do we navigate that with our kids? And how do we navigate that as parents and with other parents and in our communities and in our schools, right? You have so many different places that you live. And so what we're hoping to do with that data is really you know, look at it from so many different angles and then and go from there and say, what resources do our children need? What resources do our parents need? What resources do counselors and administrators in schools need to really fight against bullying and really combat it and make sure that our kids feel safe? Um, and then what are we doing about the mental health crisis? <laughs> the huge right. mental health crisis that is happening in this country as well. So I think, yeah, you have to approach it holistically when you're thinking about how we're talking about our kids and making sure that they feel safe. Anisha, how do you as a parent navigate those conversations? My baby's two. (laughs) And it's, it's like, he hasn't even started daycare yet. And he starts in exactly a month. And I have like, I can't tell you how many times I've already cried because there's a part of it that's like, he's been with me every single day, even when I'm working, like I know he's outside with the nanny, right? But the other part of it is fear. It really is, right? It's fear of like, he's been protected by me in this home this whole time, right? Especially as mothers. I mean, they're protected in your room and then they're outside and you're like, oh no. And then you protect them and they're like, oh, and they have to go out into this, this real world of being cared for by strangers. And, you know, between the mental health crisis, bullying, like cyberbullying, the gun violence pandemic we have, you know, in this country and everything in between, it is scary. And so I, I often talk, you know, husband often talk about this, raising your kids with compassion, empathy, and really making sure they are showing up in their best way, I think is the best thing you can do. You know, we have all of the books that really talk about different religions and faiths and races. And, and we're already talking about so much of that with him at this age, because they are sponges. Exactly. And, you know, being involved, like really, I find comfort in getting involved with the school he's about to join, understanding and and being in community with folks. I think one of the saddest things I think that has happened because of the internet is that we are siloed ourselves out of face-to-face, one-on-one interaction and bonding that brings communities together, creates the best natural, organic education opportunities, right? Because yeah. we just go home and we get on our phone and we're on social media, but we're not <laughs> we're not doing that right anymore. And I think that's causing a lot of what we're seeing. And so being intentional about that too, I want to be, once he's in school, intentional about creating those relationships with his teachers and his 
classmates and the parents there and really fostering what I hope to see, right? Like modeling what I hope to see as he grows and just reminding myself that it's one day at a time and and we kind of navigate it as best as we can, always remembering Michelle Obama when they go low. When they go low, we go high. Does that work though? <laughs> Sometimes it is like, Michelle, I do not know how you... <laughs> uh, I'm not too sure about that anymore. <laughs> Sometimes, but I think, what's the, again, right? So like, one of the first things I said, what's the alternative? They go low, so we go low, they go lower, we go lower. Like what kind of a society are we actually creating? So just like we should be trying to model our best behavior for our kids, I think trying to model our best behavior for our neighbors, I think is also an effective way to to try and think of it. But totally agree. It's hard. <laughs> but why us, Anisha? Why always us? Why should we be modeling the best behavior? Why should we be educating people? Why should we be informing people? Why is it always us? You know, that to me can sometimes be othering as if we are the outsiders trying to teach or create space or justify our existence within this community. How do we strike a balance? Yeah. How do we reorient expectations? Yeah, and I think it's it's showing up as your best self and everything I just mentioned for yourself and not out of fear because, you know, there's also, to your point, right, as people of color, as minorities in this country, there's sometimes this pressure to be your best self, because if you're not, you might get policed, you might get um, stereotyped, right? You might right anything and everything in between, not doing it for that, but doing it for yourself, right? Like for your own mental health, for your own well- wellness, for your own just well-being in general, don't let others steal your joy, because then then they are winning, right? Like, that's, mm. that's, I think, the better way maybe to phrase it, right? Like that's the approach I try to take and try to remember is I'm doing it for me. I'm doing it for my own joy, for the example I'm setting for my child, right? For the kind of environment and the vibe <laughs> that I want around me <laughs> versus to impress others or to make sure that the white man like is approving of, of me, right? Like it's it's not about that. It's about like from within. Yeah, the white man needs to see our humanity. We are human at the end of the day, right? So we can have good days and bad days and we can be angry, frustrated. We can vent our emotions and feelings and it's okay. It's, It's really okay. Anisha, talk to me about your childhood in the context of how did you see your Sikh identity growing up in the U.S.? And how did others see your identity? Do you have any examples, stories? I think it's it was such a confusing childhood, right? Because I was born here. I was born in, in New York, um, raised here. My dad doesn't have a turban. Um, I didn't you know, grow my hair from birth. But I, I was very religious. My mom and dad are, are religious, like, you know. And so we would go to Gudwara every Sunday. And it's like this, it's like you live in two worlds. Like you you go to Gudwara on Sunday, like at home, you're hearing Kirtan. You're like in that world, right? Even culturally, right? You watch the movies, you're speaking the languages, right? Like you're, you're wearing the clothes, you're doing all of that. And then like Monday comes, you go to school and like, it's like you're with your like non-South Asian friends, you're with your white <laughs> friends. And not even talking about it. They're talking about church and you're like, oh yeah, I go to my own version of that. Like that's like, you know, you just kind of brush it off. Like, yeah, I go to my own version of that. And 
it's a feeling of embarrassment. I remember just like, you know, you're like, I don't want to bore you with kind of the details of the different type of church thing I go to, right? Like, I don't want to, you know, um, you're trying to assimilate and it's hard because, you, you know, you have friends and like now as an adult, you know, like your true friends, like they want to know exactly who you are and you have to be your authentic self and you have all those concepts. But when you're that young, all you want to do is be liked and you want your friends, you know, you want to fit in and, and all of that. And for me, it became two different worlds that I lived in. I had my sick identity, my brown identity and, and my South Asian identity here. And then I had what I, what I, how I showed up at school and they were so separate and I kept them separate for so, so long. I don't think it was until maybe college that they started merging more and it became my full identity. And now it's, it's all mixed in together, right? Especially, you know, working at the sick coalition as the executive director, I, I will say, right. I have former colleagues that I worked with, whether at Planned Parenthood or Center for American Progress or anywhere in between who are like, wait, where do you work? Like, what, what's that? Right. And I'm like, whoa, right. Like I, it's like a blast from the past. Yeah. And I'm having those conversations again, conversations that never had to happen at Planned Parenthood or Center for American Progress because it didn't, right. didn't come up as often. But it's interesting now the way I approach it is so much more like, yeah, let's, let's, let's sit down. Let's actually talk about it. Let me tell you more, right. You need to know more <laughs> versus how it was <laughs> at childhood, which was like, yeah, don't worry about it. Like, yeah, let's talk about your church and let's talk about your stuff. Growing up, it seems like you were almost trying to contextualize every experience for them, for their understanding, yeah. right? Drawing those parallels all the time. It must be so taxing. It was. and But you don't realize it when you're going through it because it's all you know, right? I think being raised here, born and raised here, that's as a child of immigrants, if that's all you know, that's how you just assume it's being handled by everyone. It's not until you're older that you're like, man, the white people had it so much easier. <laughs> they could just bring their full selves and they just didn't have to like try to juggle all of this. And so much of that, right? Like you didn't want to smell like Indian food. You didn't want to, you know, there were so many pieces of it that you don't even realize that, hey, that's not normal. That's not how your experience needs to be. It could be better. It could be different. It could be more authentic. And so, yeah, you don't realize it. And I'm, I'm sure the experience for someone who maybe lived in Punjab or India or, or, or wherever in, in, in South Asia, and then moving here sometime in the middle of grade school, that must be such a shift, right? Where you're able to have all mm. your identity, possibly, in your in your home country, and then you come here, that's got to be so much harder because, right, like you, you actually saw the other side, <laughs> you saw how it could be, and then you're coming here. So I think about this a lot, because in an instant, I was an immigrant. I was part of minority groups. I was othered. And I did not experience any of it in Pakistan. Anisha, given the social and political landscape in America right now, representation in media, which has changed, which has improved, how do you see your son's experiences may be different than yours growing up, do you hope that his would probably be better? Or are you worried that they may be worse? It's both. I I feel hopeful when I see just how tolerant and diverse and open-minded young people are today compared to our generation. I mean, personal recent example is a young member of my husband's family came out as transgender. And a lot of the 
especially older generation are really grappling with that and trying to understand what are pronouns and what are what are all these things. Meanwhile, the generation that they come from are already using the right pronouns, are already able to adapt, are already understand that, con- you know, co- those concepts and how to be respectful. And like, it's so natural for them because that is the mm. world they're growing up in. Um, so I see stuff like that and I, and I just feel so hopeful. So tomorrow, if my son comes out as a member of the LGBTQ community or any other, you know, his, the color of his skin, the religion he practices, I'm, I'm sick. My husband's Hindu, like, right. Anything that he chooses, I, I feel like there's more tolerance and there's more understanding and more education and all of that. But on the flip side, We've got more obstacles, I think, than than my generation did growing up. The internet being one that we talked about, right? It, the internet can be such a cool place. I think people are nicer in person than they are online. And so hmm. especially cyberbullying for young kids, it's it's a real problem. And so that's a worry, right? I think also violence in this country has just gone up in general, hate, tolerance, all of that in general. And so I I do worry that some of that seeps in. There's also other things that we just don't talk about as climate change continues to happen. Yeah. Right. It changes the way we're showing up in spaces where our kids can't play outside as often because it's a million (laughs) degrees outside or there's air pollution and wild from from wildfires every other day. And so how are they getting the mental health breaks that they need that we just took for granted kind of growing up? And so I think there's just so many things you see in the news and things that you're seeing rapidly evolve in the environment around the next generation that I think can cause more tension and, and some of that that takes away from the openness and diversity that you you also kind of see. So it's that it's that balance. And I think and, and the hope is that folks are leaning into that open mind. Let's have dialogue piece of it and less falling prey right to some of the environmental aspects of it i like your hope part i wish i was as hopeful (laughs) anisha how are you taking care of yourself i feel like that's such a loaded question as a mom to a toddler as an executive director of the organization as someone who just cares deeply about what's happening to this country, there's so many layers to it. Honestly, at the end of the day, I am so exhausted from all of it. I think just binging Netflix, right? Like that is my <laughs> go-to. But no, I think one thing that grounds me a lot is travel. I've always been a huge just lover of travel because I think when you get out of your own space, get to experience other cultures and, and just communities, it it grounds you. It really gives you perspective, whether it's another country that it might seem like things are better. You kind of get there and you see that everyone's dealing with their own things and everyone is still able to make it to the next day or make it to the next fight or, you know, advance and progress their, their own communities. And so travel is a huge one that I think always just kind of re re energizes me and and, um, brings me a kind of like that reset button that I need sometimes. In the end, Anisha, if you were to define America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? I have a few words. And it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's this balance, right? Because I, I really was thinking about this question. And I would say promising with opportunity. We can't deny that. 
there are worse places to be. We are very fortunate. It does bring yeah, an opportunity. Absolutely. It is promising. But it is also misguided and sometimes silencing. The way we talk about the history of America is, is incorrect. It's missing so absolutely. many voices. And so it's misguided. The, the American dream is misguided. The, the right, the foundation of it is, is misguided and, and sometimes silencing so much of the history that that is needed to be shared. It's hope filled, right? Like so much hope. Well, you, you've heard that from me several times in this conversation, but it's hurtful, right? I think going back to the beginning of this conversation, 9-11 was hurtful to see the backlash. You felt like this sense of betrayal from the country that you love and you've grown up in. So hope filled, but hurtful, right? Um, and it really is that balance. I love it. And that's why we have people like you who are working really hard to recalibrate American psyche to the inconvenient truths, right? That's what is so important. Anisha, thank you so much. I am so glad that we were able to finally do this interview. Tell me, where can people find more information about Sick Coalition, about you, and the work that you guys do. Absolutely. SickCoalition.org is a great place to start. You can follow us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook. Sorry, X, right? I need to say X now. It's not Twitter. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what the fuck is that? I keep, I keep forgetting. I got to get used to that. Um, but we're at, we are on all the social media uh, platforms. There's plenty of opportunities to get engaged, um, learn more about our work, both between the website and those platforms. Um, you can also find me. I'm also on X. Um, I, I feel like I've, <laughs> I've dropped off my posting, but I'm there as well. The beauty of our organization is we really, really are community based. So anytime someone in our community or even an ally to our community is feeling like they can't find the answer, right? Whether they're dealing with bullying or discrimination, employment discrimination, a hate incident, anything in between, we hope that the Sick Coalition can, can be that place they can turn to as their first stop, just want, whether it's resources or representation or to better understand the work that they can get involved with. So um, we hope that that's the case for some of the listeners here too. And again, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, To your point, I'm glad we were able to make this work. (laughs) And I hope your, your husband recovers quickly. Thank you. I'm so glad we were finally able to have a conversation with Anisha. Despite all the roadblocks, I'm also thinking a lot about how do I engage all of you in these conversations. And I know I have said in the past that if you have thoughts on a conversation or if you want to give feedback, you can always send us a voice memo. You can sit in a quiet place, record a voice memo and email us either at info at immigrantlypod.com or at sadia at immigrantlypod.com because these conversations are as much for you as they are for me and for our guests. I have created this space for all of us to be actively engaged in. So think about it. Also, don't forget to check out Sick Coalition's website and if you can, do support them. 
It's always good to support organizations that are inclusive, that are doing important work. You can always reach me at sadia at immigrantlypod.com if you have again any thoughts. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We are on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Threads. Oh, and by the way, our RSS feed was reset on Spotify. So if you listen to us on Spotify, you may not be able to get any alerts. You may not be able to follow us anymore. Please find us on Spotify and re-follow, re-share. This episode was produced by me, written by Michaela Strother and me. The editorial review, as always, is done by Shay Yu. Our editor for this particular episode is Baroma Chakravarsi and the theme music for Immigrantly is done by Simon Hutchinson. Until next time, take care.